put before us some preliminary truths before we jump into this morning's message. Uh, just some things that need to be said sort of at the outset. Uh, the first is this. God has called us to be a people of truth. God's people are to be a people of truth. He has given us revealed truth in creation. And he has especially given us his truth in the Bible. And the truths that we find in God's word, we are to know, we are to believe, we are to love, we are to defend. We're to be a people of truth. Second, sometimes our preconceptions can cause us to miss the truths taught in a biblical passage. That is, sometimes we can, we can come to the Bible with these ideas already in our head. And because we have those ideas, we don't actually read the text and see what it says clearly. But rather, we're almost reading things into the text that are not there at all. Uh, for example, the parable of the prodigal son. The primary message of Jesus in the parable of the prodigal son is not about the prodigal son. Jesus is speaking there to the Pharisees and the main character that he is drawing their attention to in that passage is ultimately the older brother. But because for so long we have called that parable the parable of the prodigal son and heard it preached that way and taught that way, we may actually read that passage and miss the main point that's being given. In reality, it probably should be called the parable of the older brother. Well, in the same way as we are looking at Luke 2 and the story of Jesus' birth, continuing our verse-by-verse study of this gospel, we have to acknowledge up front that we bring a whole lot of preconceptions to this passage. Because almost all of us have grown up celebrating Christmas, hearing Christmas songs, uh, having our Christmas traditions. And along the way, many of those have probably gotten intermixed into our understanding of the Word of God so that there may be some things that we're bringing to this passage that aren't actually here. And therefore, if we're to read this text right, if we're to understand what God is saying, we may have to put aside some of our traditional beliefs. A third point we need to make is that traditions may or may not be true. I'll give you just one example. Nowhere in Luke 2, nowhere in the Gospels does it ever say that Mary rode to Bethlehem on a donkey. That doesn't mean she didn't. She very well may have rode on a donkey. I think it's probably more likely she did than she didn't. But we don't know. So that traditional belief may be true, or it may not be true. That's how traditions work. Uh, fourth, as Christians, we need to make sure that we're concerned with understanding and defending the truths that are contained in the Word of God. Uh, we're to care less about defending traditional beliefs that may or may not be true. We're to care far more about believing, loving Obeying, defending truths that are actually found in the Word of God. We don't want to be like the Pharisees. 
the Pharisees went far astray because they began elevating human traditions to the same level as the Word of God. We need to be careful to know the difference between the two and not to mix them together. And so with that said, before we even dig in to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, I want to help us kind of put aside some things that might cause us not to see this text objectively. Uh, here are a few of the common beliefs about Jesus' birth that people often think are in the Bible, that people often think are here in Luke 2, that are not actually here or anywhere else in the Word of God. So one we've talked about before, there is no command in the Bible to celebrate Christmas. Uh, we took some time a few years ago to, to unpack this. The Bible only commands us to celebrate one holy day. And we're doing that right now. It's the Lord's Day. Uh, before the New Testament, before the Old Covenant, way back at creation, God instituted a pattern for our lives. God worked for six days, rested on the seventh, and he created man in his image and said, the same way that I just did this and had dominion, you imitate me. And so the Sabbath is woven into the fabric of what it means to be human. It is to be a part of our human nature, a part of our human lives. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me, actually, if we still kept this pattern even in heaven of working six days, happy work, heavenly work, but working six days and then worshiping and resting in a glory-filled Sabbath day. That's how it was in the first paradise. Wouldn't surprise me if it's that way in the second paradise. But all the other holy days that come later in the Bible were part of the Mosaic Covenant, all pointing to Christ, all pointing to who He would be and what He would do for us. In the New Testament, we find Jesus rising from the dead on Sunday, gathering with his apostles on Sunday, ascending on a Sunday, pouring out the Holy Spirit on a Sunday. In Acts, we see the churches gathering on Sunday. John calls Sunday the Lord's Day. Paul commands for Christians to give offerings when they gather on Sunday. So the New Testament seems very clear, uh, certainly by example, if not by precept, that Christians are to keep the Sabbath and that our Sabbath is to be the Lord's Day, Sunday. Christmas is not a holy day. It's a holiday. It's a man-made tradition. That doesn't mean it's bad. Uh, Christmas and Easter are two wonderful opportunities for Christians to pass on truth to the next generation. Uh, these aren't holy days, but they are holidays in which much can be done that is good for the glory of God and the honoring of Christ. We just have to be careful that we never mistake them as something commanded by God. Uh, remember, many Christians before us refused to celebrate Christmas. Uh, the Puritans, the pilgrims that came to, to America... Uh, they saw Christmas as a, as a Roman Catholic idolatrous practice. And so they refused to celebrate Christmas. Uh, my understanding is uh, if a Christian chooses to celebrate Christmas and Easter and doesn't do so in an idolatrous way, that is fine and good. And if a Christian chooses not to celebrate Christmas or Easter, and we know some who choose that, that's fine too. Because it's not a command in Scripture. 
We don't have time for it now, but as we've tried to show in previous messages, I don't think Christmas has its origins in Roman pagan worship. I don't think Christmas has its origins in the Roman mass. And so I do think it's a fine thing to do. It's just not a biblical command. Well, a second traditional belief that we often think is in this chapter that actually isn't here and it isn't in Matthew either is that the wise men showed up at the manger. How many of your nativity scenes have the shepherds at the manger and the the wise men at the manger? Whereas if you're going to have a traditional nativity scene, you probably should have the shepherds at the manger and then like have the wise men on the other side of the room slowly, slowly making their way there. Uh, because the truth is that the wise men didn't show up until many months, uh, something perhaps over a year after the birth of Christ. Uh, the Bible never says there were three of them. Uh, we sing the song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. They weren't kings either. Um, the scriptures never tell us how many wise men there were. Luke doesn't even mention the wise men, only Matthew. The reason people think that there were three is because three gifts are mentioned, right? So you just imagine one per wise man, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There may have been only three. We just don't know, right? The Bible tells us what it tells us, and that's what we have. Uh, There was also not a giant star shining brightly above a stable on the night when Jesus was born. Uh, The star that appeared in the sky that night appeared in such a way that these astrologers, these royal counselors, that's what these wise men were, they were able to recognize it and understand its meaning. Uh, We think that this comes all the way back from the days of Daniel and Babylon. Daniel had introduced some of these Babylonian peoples to the Jewish scriptures There's a passage in the book of Numbers that talks about this star. And when this star appears, you will know that a scepter is being risen in Judah. And so likely these wise men from afar saw the star, knew what it meant, and began their journey. The star actually took them first to Jerusalem. And then later took them to Bethlehem, where Jesus was found long after his birthday. It was also soon after that that Herod had all the children two years or under murdered in the town of Bethlehem. And so some people use that to say, well, maybe it was two years before the wise men actually made it to come see the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's more likely that the wise men came just a few months after Jesus' birth. I don't think Mary and Joseph likely stayed in Bethlehem for two years. I think it's a really long time for them to be there. But it's possible. We just we don't know. A third traditional belief is that Jesus was born in a stable. Um, here's the one that might surprise you the most because this kind of ruins the whole nativity scene. Um, the Bible never actually says that Jesus was born in a stable behind an inn. Uh, in fact, it never says anything about a stable. Uh, the word inn in our passage, in Luke 2, is not the same thing as a Motel 6. And it's not the same idea as a hotel, like, like uh, for example, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, where the fellow takes the Good Samaritan to an inn. Luke uses a very different word there for that, for that inn. The word used here is actually a word that refers to a guest room. It's the same word used for the upper room. 
where Jesus and his disciples would have the Last Supper. It typically was a room in a house that was set aside for guests to use, for guests to lodge in. Um, Most scholars agree that Joseph and Mary had lots of family in Bethlehem. Uh, That's why they're here. This is their ancestral home. And they would have had kin in Bethlehem who were using their homes as lodging places for all of their family members who were now coming into town for the Roman registration. And so likely uh, they were using an open space, uh, probably on the bottom floor of a family member's home, but it was crowded because all of the family folk were in town. For this registration. There were so many people that had to come in. Now the main reason that people picture a stable. Is because Luke mentions the manger. And here's where culture differences explain a lot. Uh, We now know and have known actually for a long time. That in Bethlehem. As well as in other Jewish homes of that time. Mangers were a common part of a person's home. And that's because most of these folks had donkeys, and their donkeys typically stayed in the home. That is, there was a portion of the lower level of the home uh, that had hay, and their donkeys would stay there, and mangers were there. It's not impossible that Jesus was born in a stable behind an inn, but it's just not the most natural understanding of what Luke is actually saying. The most natural reading is that the place where Joseph and Mary were staying was crowded with other guests, so crowded that the baby Jesus was probably born in the area of the house where the donkey was kept. Sort of a stable, but an in-the-house stable. And that the donkey's manger was used as a crib. I know it ruins a lot of Christmas carols that talk about stables, um, But if it helps, it isn't too far to say that it really was kind of a stable. It was just probably inside a house. And that's where we find Joseph and Mary. Now, some scholars, I think, go too far. They say that since Joseph and Mary were likely in a family home, they must have had lots of people actually around them rejoicing when Jesus was born. But that's not at all the picture that Luke gives us. Wherever Joseph and Mary are, whatever guest lodging they are staying in, Luke says absolutely zero about there being any family or friends around helping care for them. My guess is that Joseph and Mary were not too welcome by these kinfolk because Mary was under suspicion and Joseph may have been under suspicion as well. Uh, They all knew that these two were betrothed but not yet fully married. And yet here is Mary giving birth to a child. And certainly, if she was trying to tell them about Gabriel, uh, they might have thought she was crazy. And, uh, and so, though they probably weren't in a stable behind an inn, I think they were very much alone. Uh, very much on their own in this delivery. Well, that's just a few. We might hit some more uh, conceptions as we go along. But let's now look afresh. Look at Luke chapter 2 and let's see what does the passage actually Say, what does the Bible actually tell us in these verses? So verse one, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. 
This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. I just stop there. Remember that Luke is a historian. He told us in chapter 1 that he carefully researched this gospel. Luke's writing this about 60 years after the event. And so Luke here is kind of like if I were to tell you about something that happened in the 1950s. And if I was going to tell you about something that happened in the 1950s, I might say, well, in those days, a law was passed under President Eisenhower. Uh, It took effect when Luther Hodges was the governor of North Carolina. And for people who were alive in the 60s or people who know their history, they know what I'm talking about. Right. Uh, It it, it puts what I'm talking about into a timeline, into a context of history. Luke is helping us by giving us these names, Caesar Augustus, Quirinius. He's he's helping us see that that what happened here happened in history. Uh, In his day, it was fairly recent history. He's writing when Emperor Nero is in rule. Nero was the fifth emperor of Rome. But he's talking about the birth of Jesus when Caesar Augustus was the emperor. He was the first emperor of Rome. Uh, Julius Caesar came before him, but he wasn't an emperor. So in some ways, this is like me saying back when George Washington was president, right? Uh, Because this wasn't just uh, any emperor. Caesar Augustus was the first one and a successful one. And he is the man ruling when Jesus is born. I'll just remind you that Caesar Augustus is also known by his name Octavian. Uh, He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. (laughs) but was adopted by him as his legal son and as his heir. Uh, Julius Caesar gets assassinated. Octavian joins with Mark Antony and Marcus Lepidus to defeat those enemies. And then they divide up Julius Caesar's kingdom into three parts. And then they start fighting each other. Uh, Lepidus is exiled. And after his defeat at the Battle of Actium, Mark Antony and his Love, Cleopatra, commits suicide. And so Octavian, now Caesar Augustus, is ruler over Rome. And at first he acts like he's going to try and keep Rome as a republic. But by 27 BC, so about 22 years before the birth of Christ, we find Caesar Augustus as Rome's first emperor. And he would reign pretty much throughout our Lord's entire childhood. Caesar Augustus would be the man in charge under whom the Lord Jesus would, would, well, until I think he was around 19 years old. Uh, There is no year zero. The calendar jumps from 1 BC to 1 AD. And based on the evidence of the Gospels and what we know about the reign of Herod the Great, uh, who ruled over Israel for Rome... Uh, I think it's most likely the birth of Jesus happened in December of 5 B.C. So this would mean that Caesar Augustus has now already been emperor for about 20 years or more when the Lord Jesus is born. Uh, Luke also mentions Quirinius, the governor of Syria. And that might seem strange because we're not in Syria Jesus isn't in Syria. Bethlehem's not in Syria. So, so Luke, of all the people you're going to mention, why mention that Quirinius is governor of, of Syria? Syria's north of Israel. 
Well, the reason he mentions that is that even though Herod the Great was the ruler over Israel for Rome, it wasn't Herod the Great that was trusted with this registration, with this census that was happening. Uh, Herod the Great had a very strange arrangement with Rome. But as far as actual bringing about this registration, it was Quirinius, governor of Syria, who was in charge, who was supposed to be making sure that every Israelite went back to their original ancestral hometown and were counted, probably for tax purposes. Um, Many in Luke's day would be able to remember this. Many in Luke's day would be able to say, oh yes, that was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, now I know when you're talking about that's when this happened. What is the point of all that? The point of all that is this. The birth of Jesus Christ is not mythology. The birth of Jesus Christ is not a tale. The birth of Jesus Christ is an event that happened in space and in time when real people were in power, in real towns that existed, The Lord Jesus Christ came to this world. God became man and it happened in real life. In the days of Caesar Augustus. In the days of Quirinius. It's a matter of history. Look at verses 3 through 5. Verses 3 through 5. And all went to be registered. Each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee. From the town of Nazareth to Judea. To the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. How many prophecies do we see fulfilled in those few verses? (laughs) The Messiah, the appointed one, he would be called a Nazarene. Look, both Joseph and Mary are from Nazareth. And yet, the appointed one, he would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And thanks to this census, look where he's being born, in Bethlehem. The Messiah would come from the lineage of David. Well, both biologically through Mary and legally through Joseph, Jesus is being born in the lineage of David. In fact, thanks to the registration, the stamp of the Roman Empire is going to be on the lineage of Jesus. Certifying he is from the lineage of David. Uh, We know very little about this man, Joseph. I wish the Gospels told us more about Joseph. Um, We're told very little about this man. The Gospels refer to him later on as a tecton. T-E-K-T-O-N in the Greek, tekton. Um, Most Bibles translate that word as carpenter. And so that's the way we often picture Joseph as a carpenter working with hammer and nails. Uh, The Catholic Church actually refers to Joseph as Saint Joseph the carpenter. However, the word tekton can also refer to people who work with stone. uh, People who chisel and work with stones. And we actually think that's more likely what Joseph did, and that's more likely the trade that Jesus grew up learning. If you ever go to Israel, especially Galilee, and you look around, you will see why it would not have been a good choice to be involved in working with wood. There's just no trees. Um, It's a very barren 
landscape. Trees are, are scarce. Uh, just the opposite, actually, when you look at the homes both today and especially the homes that have been excavated, when you look at the furniture, it's all made of stone. Uh, in Capernaum, um, when I was in Capernaum some years ago, this was new to me back then, uh, we, we came across a place, Capernaum you know, would be Jesus' kind of headquarters of his ministry. We came upon a place where they dug up what used to be, quote-unquote, a tectons uh, uh, area, sort of where the, his, his um, office, so to speak, would have been. And it had all kinds of things there that were chiseling instruments and basins for stonework. No, no wood. It doesn't mean that Jesus and Joseph wouldn't have occasionally worked with, with wood. But um, one scholar says Jesus and Joseph would have formed and made nine out of ten projects from stone. Either by chiseling or by carving the stone or by stacking blocks. And so when you think of Joseph, you probably should think of him more as a worker with stone and Jesus too, as he was learning that trade, uh, rather than hammer and nails. We have to note the humble obedience of Joseph. Joseph and Mary are not yet fully married. They are only betrothed. Now, the betrothal relationship was a strong relationship. It required a divorce to get out of a betrothal relationship. But nevertheless, this is not a marriage that is complete yet. During the betrothal period, typically a husband and wife were separated. The husband had already paid a dowry to the father for the bride... And now he says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for us to live. And there's going to be some months of separation. And when I've got everything squared away and all our affairs are in order, I'm going to come back. And when I come back for my bride, there's going to be the big wedding feast and everybody in town's going to come. And there's going to be this great marriage supper that happens. And then the husband would take his bride and the marriage would be consummated. So what's unusual here? You've got Joseph and Mary together. In the betrothal period. What we're told here is that basically, you know, here she is, obviously now showing that she's pregnant. Matthew tells us that Joseph, being a godly man, had decided that he would divorce her quietly. Joseph could have gone to the elders of the town of Nazareth and had her stoned to death. If she had been accused of adultery with the evidence being the child in her womb, she would have been punished under the law of Moses with being stoned to death. Joseph did not want to do that to Mary. And so he, his approach was, I'm just going to divorce her quietly. The marriage won't happen. We won't make a big deal about it. I'll move on with my life. If she had told him about Gabriel, he might have thought she's crazy too. And decided, I don't know what's happening with her. This relationship just isn't going to work. And then Matthew tells us that Joseph has a dream. And in that dream, an angel of the Lord confirms for Joseph everything that Mary has said. That the child in her womb was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That this child in her womb is the promised one of God. And so despite the talk of people, despite the suspicions that were surely going to fall upon him, despite the accusations that people would make, we find Joseph coming alongside Mary during the betrothal period to care for her. He is the only person we find by Mary's side at the birth of Christ. 
They travel to Bethlehem together. Uh, Joseph would truly take Mary as his wife uh, after the birth of Christ. And in fact, Joseph and Mary would have children together. Children who show up later in the Gospels. Look at verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7. And while they were there, that is in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, there are three key observations I want to make from these these verses. So first note that while they were in Bethlehem, the time came for Mary to give birth. This is not the picture of Mary riding into Bethlehem on a donkey while having contractions. This is, they've been in Bethlehem. The the, the people didn't travel to Bethlehem for a day, register and go home. The idea is they're going to be in Bethlehem for a while. And they've probably been in Bethlehem for a while. And while they're in Bethlehem, the time comes for Mary to give birth. But they're in this crowded place. There's no room for them in the inn, in the lodging place. And so they're in some strange circumstances. Uh, Second, note that Luke calls Jesus Mary's firstborn son. So this is Luke already hinting at the fact that Jesus is not going to be the only son of Mary. And the scriptures are very clear that Mary had other children. That's important to point out just because the Roman Catholic Church does teach the doctrine that Jesus had no brothers and no sisters. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church teaches the perpetual virginity of Mary. Uh, They teach that Joseph and Mary never consummated their marriage at all. But all that's based on false tradition, not the truth of the Bible. In Matthew 13... Jesus is now in his ministry. He comes back to his hometown of Nazareth. He preaches in the synagogue. And the people respond, Is this the carpenter's son? The tecton's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And then they say, Are these not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not his sisters here with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And so Matthew tells us that after Jesus, conceived by the Holy Spirit, was born to Mary, Mary and Joseph would later go on to have at least four sons and an unknown number of daughters. Uh, The first son that would be born to Joseph and Mary would be named James. And he's going to be very important later on. He's a very important leader in the early church. In fact, you have a book in your Bible that was written by him, the book of James. That is James, the brother, or if you like, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we picture Jesus growing up, don't picture Jesus as an only child. Uh, Jesus grew up with younger brothers and sisters in the home. Uh, For Mary, Jesus is her firstborn son. Well, third... Note that the Lord Jesus Christ, being born, was laid in a manger. Now, this is what we talked about at our Christmas Eve service. This is really the the most unusual thing in the passage. 
Mangers were kept in homes in Bethlehem for the donkeys. People did not put babies in mangers. You would not put a baby in a manger. I would not put a baby in a manger. These are feeding troughs. And so this is meant to strike you as weird. If you've been singing away in a manger since you were three, as I have, you might think there's something natural about this. Oh, yes, the little Lord Jesus lying in a manger. No, it's supposed to be weird for you. Strange, awkward, degrading, demeaning, the Son of God, born in such circumstances. Nowhere to lay his head except a filthy manger. Well, this manger would be the sign that, as we'll see next time, God gave the shepherds. To say, that's how you'll know the one who is the Son of God. Here's how you will know the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He'll be in a donkey trough. That's how you'll know him. And it just says something about the humility of Christ. How any of us can come to him. How any of us can approach him. Uh, It's a picture for us of, of what we can't really grasp. How far our Lord condescended to become a man. That we as sinners would be saved. So what is this passage really all about? What is so significant about the birth of Jesus? Well, Luke really doesn't tell us in these first verses. Rather, he helps us to understand through the message of the angels to the shepherds. And I'll just remind you what it said. You can see it. Unto you was born this day in the city of David. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. What child is this? He is the Christ. That is the anointed one, the Messiah, the promised one. He is the Lord. And not just a Lord, the Lord. The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the most powerful one who will ever exist. The one who will establish a kingdom that will never end. A kingdom where righteousness will dwell forever. Where there will be perfect justice and perfect peace. And this child is a savior. He is a rescuer. And for those of us in this room who have ever come to see how messed up we are. How wicked we are. How we've rebelled against God. There is no greater news in the world than this. I was headed to hell. I was headed towards an experience of the wrath of God for all eternity. And not only was I walking a path to hell, but I was walking it blindly. I didn't even know I was in trouble. I didn't even know that I needed to be going a different path. I was hopeless. And God sent a rescuer, a savior. That's what the word means, one who rescues. And through his life and through his substitutionary death and through his resurrection and through even now his present work in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ saves sinners. And so here is the unvarnished truth. I hope I haven't ruined too many traditional beliefs for you. I hope it hasn't been too disillusioning. But we can put aside misconceptions. We can put aside things that may or not be true. We cannot put this aside in real time, in real space, in the history of this world, in the days of Caesar Augustus, when Quirinius was governor of Syria, in the little town of Bethlehem, a savior for sinners was born. 
That's not a misconception. That's not a traditional belief. That is the authoritative, infallible, and inerrant word of God. And it is the hope that we have as Christians. Our hope is in this Lord Jesus. A baby born in Bethlehem. Now the Lord of history. Amen? Let's pray.